So for the past couple weeks, we have been talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, so before that, Sam did a session on who the Holy Spirit is, uh, the person of the Holy Spirit. And the last two weeks, we've been doing um, the work of the Holy Spirit. What does he do? Uh, does anybody remember any of the ways we've talked about so far that the Holy Spirit works? What are some of the ways that the Holy Spirit works? Yeah, it, so the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. It's really good. Yes, the Holy Spirit empowers. Talk more about that today. Yes, the Holy Spirit uh, draws us to Christ and unites us to Christ. He is, uh, yeah, the, the uniter to Christ. Absolutely, yes, brings freedom, uh, freedom from sin um, and being a slave to sin. It's good. Anything else? Work of the Holy Spirit that we've talked about? Helper? Yeah, good. Yes, he intercedes um, when we are too weak. Um, yes, he's a teacher. So some of the other ones we talked about, conviction, uh, we mentioned regeneration. The Spirit's actually uh, the person that regenerates us. Uh, of the Trinity. He indwells, gives us assurance, uh, unity with Christ. Sanctification, it's the spirit that uh, makes us more like Christ in sanctification. Um, and then we finally talked a little bit last week about how he works in the church. So some of the ways he works in the church is he inspired scripture as the final authority for the church. Um, he illuminates scripture to those, um, to, well, to all of us in, in a sense, and then to those who are going to exposit it to us. Um, the Spirit raises up elders. It's actually His work that uh, raises up pastors and elders. Um, and the Spirit also produces um, unity within the diversity of our church, um, which is awesome. So today we are going to wrap up uh, with part three of the work of the Holy Spirit, wrapping up the things that He does. So to be clear, uh, what we've talked about already in the past two weeks is like the primary work of the Spirit. It's the stuff that's super clear in Scripture. Um, we have covered his primary work. And now we want to finish by talking about a few of the things uh, in Scripture that have been taken to mean different things by maybe different denominations or different groups within the church uh, and take a closer look at what Scripture means by these things. So if you look at your handout, um, you can see some of the topics, baptism in the Holy Spirit, uh, being filled with the Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, so yeah, if you can't tell, this is... Not an easy topic, um, not one that's super simple and just straightforward answers throughout Scripture. There are lots of views, as you can even see uh, on your handout. So we're going to walk through um, all of those. Um, as I mentioned last week, I think it would be a little ironic if we did this and didn't ask the Spirit for help before we began. So let's pray now and ask the Spirit to help us understand the Scriptures. Lord, we do pray um, that we would have open ears to hear what your Word says that we would believe it as uh, what it is, spirit-inspired and, uh, and fully true, and the final rule and authority in our lives. Um, Lord, we pray that we'd submit to it. Uh, we pray that we'd be filled with the Spirit, that we might understand these things, uh, and that you'd give us great encouragement um, in how you're at work in your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, let's dive right in. So the first topic on your handout is baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is the first phrase that we want to cover. What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? This phrase appears seven times in the New Testament. Um, a couple examples, if you want to write any of these down. 
Luke 3.16. John the Baptist says this in Luke 3.16. I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, uh, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So that's one. I think I put Acts 1.5 on your handout there. Um, Jesus says in Acts 1.5, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So question for you all. Uh, in Acts 1, what event do you think Jesus is referencing when he says, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit? I think I've heard it. There it is. All right. Pentecost, yes. Uh, this, this passage is clearly connected to Pentecost. He says in a few days they'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. A few days later, Pentecost happens, uh, and it's very clear that the Spirit shows up in Pentecost. Um, so there are four main ways that this phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit, um, has been interpreted in the history of the church. Remember again as we study this that church history is not infallible. It's not our final rule, uh, not our final authority. It's not scripture. However, uh, you have to recognize what you're doing if you're going to go against the, the bulk of church history. It's a big thing to do. Uh, it's a, you have to recognize the magnitude of what you're doing if you disagree with a huge chunk of it. For example, if I want to deny the historic understanding of the Trinity, because I don't ever see that word, the actual word Trinity in the Bible, I stand virtually alone against 2,000 years of pretty unified thought on the Trinity. Uh, so when you stand alone against 2,000 years of people smarter than you, virtually unified on a topic, uh, recognize the weight of that. Like, you could be right. That's not an infallible rule of authority. You could be right, but most likely uh, you're not. So, okay, back to the four primary ways uh, baptism with the Holy Spirit has been taught uh, and thought of in churches. First, uh, the Pentecostal view, which I think, yeah, it's on your handout there. So let me just say, as we kind of get into this, um, some of us may have grown up in just a wide variety of church cultures uh, and settings and practices. So what I want to do today is just get to the plainest meaning of Scripture, of the text. Um, I don't want to denounce other denominations or schools of thought except where Scripture is very clear uh, in denouncing those things. So please try to hear me with grace, and I'm going to try to speak with grace um, on these issues. Let's both just approach the text together uh, and ask God to show us what's true as we look to the text uh, as our highest authority. So, uh, Pentecostals have typically taken these verses to mean that there is a separate event, separate from conversion, where baptism in the Holy Spirit takes place. And that the evidence of this event is that you do what they call speaking in tongues, uh, because the disciples spoke in tongues at Pentecost. Even though, we'll get into it a little bit more later, but Pentecostals today, just to be blunt, generally are not practicing speaking in tongues the same way uh, as Acts 2 prescribes. So this interpretation of Scripture um, is, is pretty lacking, to say the least. Um, looking for our own personal Pentecost is a little silly. Uh, Pentecost was a one-time historical event. It's a unique, redemptive historical event, just like the crucifixion, the resurrection, or the ascension. Um, we don't look for our own personal ascension or our own personal Garden of Gethsemane, um, and we shouldn't necessarily look for our own Pentecost. 
Furthermore, and perhaps most compelling against this argument, uh, nowhere in Scripture do we see a pattern of conversion followed by confirmation of the Holy Spirit by way of speaking in tongues. That's just not a pattern that we see in Scripture. Um, 1 Corinthians 12.30, which we're going to read later, actually makes it explicitly clear that not all Christians will speak in tongues. So even if you think the practice continues, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 makes it clear that not all of us will speak in tongues. Uh, and that speaking in tongues is a gift and not an indicator of someone who's more holy uh, than someone else. So if you would, turn with me to Acts 2, um, which is where Pentecost takes place. Acts 2, verses 4 through 6 is what I'm going to read. Okay, this is Acts 2, verses 4 through 6. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at, the sound, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So question for you, what is speaking in tongues in Acts 2, verses 4 through 6? Yeah, it's, it's speaking a language that exists, that somebody out there understands, that you could have a translator and translate it into, like, another language, like German or Spanish. Um, so looking at Acts 2, speaking in tongues in Scripture is speaking a different language that has meaning, where an interpreter can literally translate what you're saying. Uh, in fact, it's better to call this the gift of languages rather than the gift of tongues. <clears throat> the KJV just happened to translate the word tongues. It's probably clearer to say languages um, in our day. So Pentecostalism, again, stands against 1,900 years of church history on this view of tongues specifically. Uh, Pentecostalism arose in the early 1900s, um, and their view of tongues is neither scriptural nor in agreement with virtually all of church history before them. So that's the Pentecostal view of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, I've had a ton of dear friends in high school and college who are Pentecostal in belief, uh, and they love the Lord. So don't hear me say I'm, I'm not questioning their love of the Lord here at all. Um, they're dear friends. They love the Lord. What I'm doing is simply saying I think Scripture would find this view incredibly lacking uh, and flat-out wrong at some points. So that's the Pentecostal view. The second view there that you see is that conversion is baptism in the Holy Spirit that these two events are not separate, that they're actually the same thing being referenced. Um, it's what happens. They would say this is what happens when someone becomes saved and regenerated. Um, so those who argue this would look to verses like 1 Corinthians 12, 13, which says this, We were all baptized in one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So those who argue this say that baptism in the Holy Spirit uh, refers to the activity of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the Christian life, when we're given new spiritual life and regeneration, and are given a clear break with the power of sin. They would say that baptism in the Holy Spirit is not some second experience for extra spiritual Christians. It's just what happens when you become a Christian. Those who disagree with this view will argue that it really does appear with the disciples and with the Samaritans in Acts that these were two separate things, uh, it seems like in Acts. That the outpouring of the Spirit happened post-conversion, 
So they would say, you have the disciples converted in Acts 1, but told by Jesus to wait to go out to proclaim the gospel until they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. So those who disagree with this view would say, what well, looks like in Acts, these were two different things. So that's that view. Conversion, uh, so the, the next view. Conversion and baptism uh, in the Spirit are two separate events, but they happen simultaneously now. That would be the third view. Previously separate, now simultaneous events. Um, this third view claims that in Acts, it's clear that conversion uh, and baptism in the Spirit are two separate events, and that occasionally in Acts, they happen at different times. However, now that that kind of unique period of church history is over, uh, these things happen at the same time. So if you want Connor Davies' personal opinion on this, after one week of study, no seminary education, and a brain that thinks about Cheerios like eight hours a day, um, I, at this moment, I probably align with this view. Um, Cliff and Sam may disagree. You may disagree. You very well might be right. Um, I'm just trying to make it clear my bias leans in this direction. I think it honors the clear separation of the two events in my mind and acts, but also explains what we see as normative today, that these two things kind of happen at the same time. So this view would argue that the reason it happened in two stages in acts, the reason it was separate in acts, is because the gospel was being validated to the Gentiles um, and the nations through these miracles, such as speaking in other languages. However, this view would say that today we do not experience this two-stage entry uh, of the Holy Spirit. Rather, at the point of faith, that th at the time that we're converted, we participate individually uh, in this outpouring of the Spirit, like what happened at Pentecost. It's a one-stage event now, where we are converted and the Spirit is poured out at us, poured out on us at one time. Uh, those who disagree with this view would bring up verses like Romans 8-9, which says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ in them does not belong to him. So they would say, if the Holy Spirit didn't fully reside in the disciples, can we really say that they were, they were converted? Um, that's basically what they would argue against this. So the final view is, um, is, is kind of a unique one. It's that baptism in the Spirit is separate for conversion, from conversion, and meant to empower for ministry. Um, so they're separate events, and the, the outpouring of the Spirit is meant to uh, empower in a special way for ministry. In this view, the argument is that in each instance in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit is given, um, he's given for the explicit purpose of proclaiming the gospel, and filling for the power of ministry. So, for example, in Acts 1.8, Luke describes being baptized with the Spirit as receiving power for witness when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In Luke 24, verse 49, Luke says that being baptized in the Spirit is being clothed with power from on high so that the message of Christ can be taken effectively to all nations of the world. So, for holders of this view, baptism in the Holy Spirit uh, is a subsequent, separate from conversion, uh, and special empowerment of the Spirit to do mighty things for Jesus in Jesus' name. Uh, this is the view that I think John Piper holds, just uh, if anybody wants a name to latch on to. Those who disagree with this view um, would argue that there seems to be more than just empowerment going on uh, in this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It seems that it's not just empowerment, but indwelling that's occurring. Uh, when the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens. Uh, and they'd point to verses that we've already 
referenced about all believers having the Spirit, um, that it wouldn't be a separate, special thing. So these are the four views. Um, and we're going to have other topics that we talk about today where there's several different views. What do you think we're supposed to do with this information? Like, we have four different views. Some of us may be in different camps. What do you think we should do uh, now that we know this information? Like, what are we to do as a church? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Search the scripture, ask the spirit for understanding. It's good. Anybody else? Yeah. 100%. So disagreeing well with one another, being charitable to one another. Um, So in areas where our conflicts, uh, where our view conflicts with another's in this class or in our church or in the world, uh, it's good to be gracious to one another in disagreement. Um, It seems that, you know, maybe the reason it's not super clear is because we can show the world how to disagree well with one another in some of these things uh, in Scripture. So hear one another's concerns with your own view. Actually listen to that person instead of just coming up with a response while they're talking. Um, Hear what they're saying. Argue your point from Scripture. Don't act like uh, this is a first-order issue if it's not. Don't act like the gospel hinges on uh, some of these views. And then I think another thing we can do as a church is just praise God for what is clear in Scripture um, about the work of the Holy Spirit. So he has poured out his Spirit on believers. That's clear in Scripture. Um, We know so much of the Spirit's work that we've been talking about the past couple weeks from Scripture, uh, and we can be thankful that we've been given this Spirit if we're in Christ. So that's baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, The second phrase used repeatedly that we're going to dive into in Scripture uh, that we should help to clarify is the phrase, being filled with the Spirit. So I believe I put Acts 4.31 in parentheses there on that. Um bullet or that section acts 431 says this when they had prayed the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the holy spirit and began to speak the word of god with boldness so what does this phrase mean being filled with the holy spirit Um, so we're going to go through this quickly each of the four views we talked about previously has different views on this this phrase Um, So the first view that we talked about, the Pentecostal view, has their own view of being filled with the Spirit. Those middle two that we talked about uh, in the previous section would agree with uh, B here, section B. And then the last view um, would agree with section C. So I'm just going to go through and kind of tie them all out. Um, So for Pentecostals, as we talked about earlier, being filled with the Spirit means speaking in tongues. Uh, and is the mark of true conversion. Speaking in tongues is the mark of true conversion. Um, Again, if you read 1 Corinthians 12, it says explicitly that not all Christians will speak in tongues. So even if you think the gift continues, um, not all Christians will speak in tongues. Uh, And even if we were all to speak in tongues, the way Pentecostals say they're speaking in tongues is most often not the way we see the practice happening in Scripture. Uh, It's not a literal language like we talked about earlier at Pentecost. It's something else. Um, Then for those second two groups in the baptism of the Spirit section, uh, 
where we say conversion is either the same thing as baptism in the Spirit, or they used to be different, but now they're the same thing. Those two groups would say that being filled with the Holy Spirit is basic empowerment for the work of ministry, which is part B there. Um, again, this is where I would most align, that being filled with the Spirit is basic empowerment for the work of ministry. Um, according to this view, being filled with the Holy Spirit often results in increased sanctification and increased power for ministry. Um, it's usually the result of, so like how do we get filled with the Spirit? We would say uh, it's by the means of grace that God has provided for our spiritual growth. So by simple things like prayer, reading the scriptures, assembling together for the preaching of the word, uh, and fellowshipping with one another. It seems to me, you know, a really good and easy connection to make to connect reading the Bible with being filled with the Spirit. Um, if I wanted to be really filled with C.S. Lewis, if I wanted to talk like he talked and come to know his views better so I would start to act like him in public, uh, I'd probably read a lot of his books to get to know him better um, so that I can imitate him. The same, in an even more true sense, has to be true of the Spirit. Um, if we want to be filled with the Spirit, praying that it would happen as we read the very books that the Spirit inspired seems to be a pretty good way to do that, um, a pretty go-to way for us to do that. Thus, in this view, um, it's appropriate to understand that being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time thing. It's not something that just happens one time. It's an event that can and should occur over and over and over again in a Christian's life. And, for example, in Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays about the church in Ephesus that they would receive more of the Holy Spirit. Um, they, were, they already had the Holy Spirit. He prayed that they would receive more. Uh, so you might be asking yourself, how can I be filled with the Spirit already and yet be more filled with the Spirit uh, at specific times? I think the easiest way to answer that is in a visual. So if you think of a balloon that's blown up like halfway, the thing is already filled with air, uh, but you can put more air into it. Uh, and it's even more full of air then. Um, that's physics. Uh, <laughs> so in the same way, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and at the same time be able to receive more of the Holy Spirit, be more filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, it was only Jesus himself to whom the Father gave the Spirit without measure. Um, and John 3.34 makes this very clear. It says this, For the one whom God has sent, Jesus, speaks the word of God, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. So we now receive that Spirit through our unity with Christ, which is what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, and he, as Jesus was the one who had the Spirit without limit, and we are now united to Christ by that Spirit. And then the fourth view, or the third one on your handout here, um, would argue that the filling of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with baptism in the Spirit, uh, and that they're still separate events um, from conversion. So I think one thing that we can think about today is, you know, as you go home, how often, ask yourself, how often do I pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Um, have you ever done that? Do you make that a practice in your life? Uh, that's not a Pentecostal exercise to ask for something like that. That's a biblical exercise. Um, to ask that you'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we should all be praying that God would fill us with his Spirit, that we might walk in righteousness uh, and be empowered for ministry. Yeah. 
It's good. Yeah, that's a really good note. So Frank is noting Ephesians 5.16 makes it clear that we shouldn't be filled with wine or drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's an ongoing thing. Um, and we, we might need to ask for um, help from the Holy Spirit uh, when we're stumbling. It's good. Okay, let's move into the gifts of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And what I put on the handout was just some of the, uh, some of the clearer things about the gifts um, from Scripture. So, and then a couple just like classic gifts passages as well that we're going to walk through. So this is a very easy topic and one that none of us should have any disagreements on. That's a joke. Okay. Um, should be a really easy one to teach after men's retreat and daylight savings, stealing an hour of my sleep. So anyway, this, this can be a divisive topic. Um, there's a lot of discussion and confusion surrounding this topic. Uh, if you've grown up in church, chances are some of you have had diverse experiences with this topic. Uh, I'm praying as we go through this that, again, we don't see this as divisive, um, but rather that we'll praise God as the one who gives gifts to his children um, to be used for his glory in building up his church. So I think maybe the easiest place in Scripture for us to understand the purpose behind the gifts, not necessarily like the list of gifts themselves, but kind of the purpose behind it, uh, is if we turn to Ephesians. So if you would, turn to Ephesians. Um, and stay with me in this. Uh, it's going to be kind of, you're going to, when I get into this, you're going to be like, how does this relate to gifts? But it does. It all ties into it. So just hang with me. Um, in Ephesians, Paul is setting out to just show the reader the scope of God's eternal plan. Uh, in chapter 1, he starts by just laying out the wonders of the gospel of grace. How wonderful it is. Uh, in one three, he says, it's in Christ we receive every spiritual blessing. And then in chapter 2, the power of this gospel is put on display. So this is the gospel that raises men and women from death to life, reconciling God and man. That's 2 verses 4 and 5. It's through this gospel that the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between believers, is broken down. Uh, and there's unity with believers in 2.14. So in Christ, there's a new community, right, that's not united by race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or gender, uh, but it's united by Christ, and it's united in Christ. Chapter 3 then makes clear that it's through the church that God is actually displaying his wisdom. Uh, his breathtaking glory is to be put on display through these churches of believers who have been brought from death to life and united to one another by Christ. That's 3.10. And we all know how incredibly easy it is to maintain a loving, unified community of sinners. Um, after all, we love each other perfectly all the time. No, that is also a joke. Um, it is very hard to maintain a loving, unified community of sinners. It's very hard. Paul recognizes this, and so in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he exhorts the church in verse 3 to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do we do that? How do we maintain this unity of the Spirit? Well, look at verse 7 in chapter 4. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So Paul is quoting Psalm 68 here to make the point that 
the outpouring of the spiritual gifts, he's making a connection that the outpouring of these gifts is actually also the downfall of Christ's enemies. That's awesome. Okay, I'll say it again. Thank you. Um, The outpouring of these spiritual gifts, according to 4 verse 7, represents the downfall of Christ's enemies. From that place, Paul then goes into the gifts. So he set all this up in Ephesians. But remember that the gifts are to help the church remain united, to maintain that unity in the Spirit, to display the glory of God in the church, and to show that Christ does actually have power over sin and death and disunity. So then we come to Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. Um, where he actually gets into the gifts. Could somebody read Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 for us? Thank you. That's great. So let me ask you, what is, what's the purpose of the gifts according to this passage? Chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And what verse would you point to to say, like, this is the purpose of the gifts? Yeah, that's definitely part of it building up the body in love. That's great. Yeah, verse 12 you know, makes it really clear why all these people were given, why all these gifts were given. Uh, building up the body of Christ, striving for unity and maturity, we see in there, that we might hold fast to good doctrine, growing in Christ. So as we read these passages, you know, I wrote down some themes on, the, on your outline there of things that we can just you know, clearly see in Scripture. So the first one is, the gifts are meant to build up the church. The gifts are meant to build up the church. You'll find this purpose throughout um, other passages of Scripture as well. So I'm going to read one more passage about this before we notice a couple of themes. Um, I put on your handout 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I'm not going to read three chapters right now, but I am going to read one. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12, which is 31 verses. It's long, um, but it's worth reading. Notice again, as we read it, the connection to the body of Christ, to the church. So I'll give you a second to turn there. Probably worth turning there to follow along. 1 Corinthians 12. Okay. 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. 
Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? It's a rhetorical no. That's what we're supposed to think. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So again, long passage, but what do you see there, again, as the purpose of the gifts? build up the church <laughs> to build up the church this is a consistent theme with regard to spiritual gifts in the new testament so we've seen it in ephesians 4 and 1 corinthians 12 it's also in romans 12 and 1 peter 4 um, in those passages about gifts it's explicitly stated these gifts are meant to build up the church they're not just for the individual they're for the church Oftentimes, uh, you know, practically today, the way our gifts is dis are discovered is just by stepping in where there might be a need. Um, so we, we ask what, the, what, the, what needs the church has, and we trust that God will equip us to, to meet those needs. 
Um, so we don't say like, well, my gift is teaching, so I can't be cleaning the the church up. That's not my gift. Um, or like my gift is, you know, leading small groups, so I can't be working in childcare. Um, no, we should be looking for needs and ways to bless others um, that our church might be built up and trust that the Lord will equip us for ministry. So that's the first part um, there. The gifts are meant to build up the church. Secondly, uh, in Scripture, it seems pretty clear uh, that there's a priority on word-related gifts. Word-related gifts. So in each list that we read, the writer begins with and focuses on Scripture-based gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, at the end of those three chapters on gifts and how they should work in the body, um, Paul says in verse 6, listen to what Paul says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 14. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? In other words, it's much more beneficial for you uh, to hear me speak your own language um, and teach you from the word than it is for me to speak a foreign language and not have you understand it. He then concludes chapter 14 by saying this, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Again, the importance of the word and reasoning from the word uh, with our minds is highlighted over the importance of the manifestation of what we might think of as miraculous gifts. So there's a priority on word-related gifts. Thirdly, um, the gifts are gifts by God, and hopefully you kind of picked up on that theme as we read 1 Corinthians 12, and he gives as he wills. So 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, as he chose. Um, Ephesians 4, 11 says, he gave. So this should help us uh, in fighting any type of gift envy in one another. Um, gifts are given by a good God who knows what he's doing. He might have made you a foot in the body. That's a good thing. We need feet. Um, our job is not to complain, right? But to be faithful with the gifts that he's been, that he's given to us. He makes no mistakes in giving the gifts. Um, and it's, it's with the diversity of gifts that the body actually works best. That's what Paul was getting at with that extended metaphor, uh, on the body in first Corinthians 12. And then finally, what's really clear in scripture, um, is that love should be the guiding principle of these gifts. Love is the guiding principle. This is, literally at the heart of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So where do we typically hear 1 Corinthians 13 at? Like what setting? Yeah, weddings. Um, however, you know, read in context, what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 13 is actually rebuking the Corinthian church for not being loving to one another. Um, it seems that in the Corinthian church, they had elevated the gift of tongues uh, in their minds above others. Many were really desperate, it seems like, to get this gift uh, and to show off to one another and be considered really spiritual. Um, funny enough, this is still happening in certain denominations and certain practices. Uh, if you don't speak in tongues, you're regarded as less spiritual in certain places. Again, Paul makes explicitly clear not everybody will do this. Um, and, and so it's, it should be clear that, one, you're not less spiritual if you don't speak in tongues. And two... These are gifts from God, and God has told us in his word, not everybody will do this. So Paul rebukes the Corinthians um, because these gifts are not to be used to show off or to make a name for yourself. Um, they're to love others and to make much of God. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 comes between 12 and 14. 
uh, the way that we're to exercise any of our gifts is to do them in love. So as we move on to the final section, which I just called the elephant in the room, because I thought it was funny. <laughs> Somebody else thinks it's funny too. That's good. Uh, all right. If you're me uh, and you're sitting in the class right now, you're probably thinking, this is all great, but should we be doing these things? Um, why don't we speak in tongues in between the scripture reading and the prayer of confession? Why don't we have a time for miracles during the offering? Do these gifts continue or have these gifts uh, ceased? So just so we're clear as we get into this, there are faithful Bible-believing Christians who would say both, both things. Um, they would say that these so-called miraculous gifts continue to the present day, and you have people who would say they don't. Um, as we've talked about, the Bible does speak clearly against common Pentecostal uh, practices, but there are really faithful brothers and sisters um, who are trying to follow what Scripture would teach about these things and practice these gifts in a way that uh, aligns with 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Um, who believe that these gifts continue. They want to see them practice rightly. Um, we call those people continuationists. You may be one of them in our very midst. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who argue that these gifts have absolutely ceased. Like there is, there is no more of these. They don't believe any evidence uh, that you might have for them continuing. We call them cessationists. They ceased cessationists. Uh, and you may even be one of them in our midst. So if those are the kind of the two ends of the spectrum, there's this whole range of belief um, in between those two things. So many today don't believe that these miraculous gifts are to be kind of a part of the weekly rhythm of the church, uh, and yet they, would feel, they wouldn't feel compelled to disprove someone if they said they had such a gift. Um, if it happened, they would simply look to Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 um, to make sure the, the church was practicing it in an orderly manner uh, and in a way that would build up the church. So this is not a so-called first-order issue, which would be like a gospel belief where we would point at somebody and say, you aren't a Christian if you believe differently on this. It is not a core gospel belief. Uh, in fact, in many cases, it's not a second-order issue um, because in many cases, we don't even have to split our church over this, this kind of thing. We can have a, a range of beliefs and not have to split our churches. Uh, in, in many cases, this is a third-order issue, which are still important issues, for sure, but something we can show charity to one another in and still be a part of the same church um, a lot of the time. So we each need to be convinced from Scripture of our view uh, and seek to show charity to one another. So I'd encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 12-14 through 14 on your own um, and decide for yourself what you believe concerning this text. I personally have a book sitting on my shelf that I haven't yet read that deals with this very topic but it is sitting there. Looking forward to reading it. Um, if I have one observation personally on this topic, uh, it's that I'm a little sad that we call these, these gifts miraculous gifts. Uh, and we, decide to see, we, we desire to see these gifts practiced, just like the Corinthians. But I think we largely ignore a miracle that we're seeing frequently in a lot of our churches, and that's the miracle of conversion. Uh, and that's why I put part B there. Um, Peach Pear LaCroix. Okay. If you believe the Bible's teaching on conversion, conversion is the most miraculous thing that could ever happen to somebody. Right? Ephesians 2 says that you were brought from death to life in Christ. 
you a sinner and a rebel against God, right? Jesus came as the perfect human, died for you in your place, a sinner. He was raised for you, a sinner. And he now calls you a sinner, a rebel, and a corpse out of the grave and into his marvelous light. You are no longer a slave to sin if you know Christ. You have a new heart if you know Christ. You have ears to hear if you know Christ. So make no mistake, conversion is miraculous. It's miraculous. But you might not know it if you looked at our churches. If we saw someone legitimately speak in tongues in a way that the Bible would maybe advocate, so like we're on a mission trip in Spain, somebody who's never spoken Spanish just starts speaking Spanish and preaching the gospel. Uh, you would fall out of your chair, right? You would tweet live videos of it. You'd do a TikTok dance celebrating it, maybe. Seriously, though, you would tell everyone you knew all the time about this miracle that you saw of your friend, like speaking a different language that they'd never studied. But when we see conversion happen, a truly greater miracle according to Scripture or when we hear about one, we go like, yeah, praise God. What time is the basketball game tonight? It's astounding and really sad that we don't consider conversion for what it is. Just because conversion is regularly happening, we seem to have stopped seeing it for what it is, an absolute miracle of resurrection uh, in somebody's life. If you think about it, the fact that it's regularly happening should make it even more miraculous in our thoughts, not less. God is regularly pulling people from the grave and into life. So I'm not trying to deflect away from this topic. Uh, I'm, I'm simply saying that we might be guilty of ignoring God working miraculously among us frequently. Uh, again, if you want to know my personal opinion on this subject with no seminary experience, a book on the topic on my shelf that I haven't opened, and a brain that thinks about Honey Nut Cheerios hourly. Um, I'm somewhere on that spectrum between cessationist and continuationist. I would definitely lean more toward the cessationist side of things. Um, I would be very cautious if someone claimed they'd performed a miracle or spoken tongues. Um, personally, I wouldn't think that's impossible, but I would think that's very unlikely. Um, I'd be quick to doubt and slow to believe something like this, although I'm confident God can do these things and clearly did do these things uh, in the very early church Otherwise, we wouldn't have passages about them in the New Testament. Um, I think church history here, and this is kind of one of the final points on your outline, is a faithful witness uh, that these things aren't as normal anymore either. Pretty quickly after the apostles died, it seems like these gifts, uh, these practices mostly ceased. Um, and they didn't really pick back up until the early 1900s with Pentecostalism. Um, although, again, I doubt much of what they say they're doing because some of it is just clearly against Scripture. So I would describe myself as a very extremely cautious, almost cessationistic continuationist. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say you're wrong if you claimed one of these gifts, but I might say I think you're probably wrong. Um, I, however, could very well be wrong. Another thing to note here, I think, is that there's a concentration of miraculous gifts at certain times in Scripture, um, at very specific times. So, for example, the Exodus, you have a ton of plagues, a ton of miracles for the purpose of validating God to the Israelites and Egyptians and bringing them out of slavery um, and out of Egypt. You have Jesus' life, you know, he, he, tons of miracles in Jesus' life, validating him as the Son of God, 
saving people through his death and miraculous resurrection. Pentecost, again, which we've talked about, the Spirit poured out for the purpose of validating the Spirit to the Gentiles, uh, confirming this and beginning the church. So not only are these gifts clearly not common today, uh, if they continue, but they may not have even been as common in Scripture as you might think. Um, They serve to confirm and establish the church, uh, and there's fewer mentions that you might think. They happen at specific times for specific reasons. Uh, Okay, so a final note on this. What about the mission field? You know, I've heard many stories from people that uh, these practices may happen on the fringes of cross-cultural missions. Um, Again, I'd I'd say the same thing. Hold them to the same standard. Exercise extreme caution. Remember that faith comes by hearing. Thinking about missions, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by what? The Word of God. Not speaking in tongues, not gifts of healing or miracles on the mission field. What we need in missions is the miracle of conversion. And the way that the Spirit has chosen to convert is through the Bible that he inspired. We need faithful men and women who will preach the word on a mission field. So to wrap this all up, um, I would never say that God can't work in ways that we'd consider miraculous. And in fact, I believe he does. Uh, but I also wouldn't say that he has to do so. He has to operate this way. Um, to be clear, we should absolutely continue to pray for God to do things we'd consider miracles. It's a good thing to pray that the Lord would heal people. Uh, it's a good thing to pray that the Spirit would give life to those spiritually dead. It's a good thing to pray that uh, God would make himself known to people. God can and will do as he sees fit. Um, but we shouldn't assume that the primary way that God must reveal himself is through the practice of these so-called miraculous gifts, um, or that he has to do so. Um, what is clear is God has given us his word, he's poured out his spirit on believers, um, and he is at work all around us. So praise God for that. Um, any, I'm, I'm a little bit scared to do this. Any comments or questions on any of this stuff before we go, and I'll loop Cliff and Sam in if I'm un, unable to answer. So boys, you're on deck. Yeah. Yeah, so Yeah, so that that's I didn't study that passage this week, but my first take would just be psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It, I, like Frank just said, I think it might be a leap to to just assume that that's tongues. Sam Cliff, you guys want to add anything? Good question. So the question is 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Uh, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. M- my first take is that he's speaking hyperbolically here. 
Sam, Cliff, you guys want to add anything? Yeah, I think you also even see that in verse two. You know, if you keep reading, if he he's saying, "If I understood all mysteries and all knowledge," like he he doesn't, he's speaking hyperbolically. Um, so, yeah. boys. Yeah, yeah, I think to build on that, like I totally hear what you're saying and agree with you, but I think we should be, and you would agree with this, I think we're, we should be striving to translate the Bible and get it to them and not rely on like, yeah, yeah, but we shouldn't rely on miracles to like convert uh, in a normal, 
Sam, you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I, I asked him, have you ever seen somebody speak in a different language that they had studied? And he said, not one time. Uh, so, yeah. And you were in Austria. Yeah. And that's why I would say most of Pentecostal practice is like not not ordered in that in that manner. So Yep. Nick Sometimes they, they, they speak in Toronto and they will say, well, I'm going to say, this is like 
Yeah, 100%. I think that's the whole, like, body metaphor, too, is, like, well, some of you are just meant to be, like, fingernails, like, and you should be thankful, like, and I'm, a f I'm happy to be a fingernail. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Susan. Good distinction. Yeah. That's different than God giving Alex the gift of healing so that 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 miraculous, you know, just goes through him at multiple times throughout the day. Yeah. Right? We can all pray for the singular event for that to happen and mentally travel around the same time for some miraculous and where God did something that we can't explain Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah, we should absolutely be praying for the Lord to do uh, these type of things for sure, especially healing. Oh wow! There you go. Praise God. Well, let me pray, um, and uh, we can head off to big church. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for your Spirit. It's clear, Lord, that you give your Spirit to believers. Uh, Lord, let us not take that for granted. Lord, we pray that uh, we would understand these things rightly, that your spirit would even just illuminate our eyes to understand your word. Um, we pray that he'd continue to do work like convicting, regenerating, um, giving us assurance. We pray we'd see many converts and we'd see um, the miracle of conversion for what it is. Please give us eyes to see that. Um, Lord, give us discernment. Give us charity with one another in these things. Um, and thank you that you are at work all around us. In Jesus' name, amen.